From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hello and welcome to The Credit Edge, a weekly markets podcast. My name is James Crombie. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. Today's guests are Rachel Butt, who covers distressed debt and bankruptcy for Bloomberg News in New York. We're delighted to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. We're also very pleased to welcome Matthew Goitner, who covers industrials for Bloomberg Intelligence, also in New York. Hey, everyone. We'll be getting his insight later on in the show, including details of some hidden gems in credit markets. But before we do, Rachel Butt with Bloomberg News. You cover distressed debt in the US. There's always a ton of drama there. And you're out with a great scoop on Evergrande this week. What is that? Why has the company dominated the headlines for so long, not just in the US, but globally, particularly in Asia? Yeah, so I've been tracking China Evergrande Group for a long time. Evergrande is a real estate developer in China, and they have uh, been borrowing a ton of debt to help grow itself. Um, it has more than 1,300 projects across 280 cities in China. And it's the world's most indebted real estate developer with more than $300 billion of debt in total. That's in dollars, right? Yes. Okay. And uh, within that amount, around $19 billion um, is in offshore dollar bonds. So that's the most among its peers. And by offshore, you mean sitting in the U.S. Uh, credit markets? Yes, that's right. Okay. So at the beginning of 2021, Chinese regulators began to crack down on excessive borrowing in the market and uh, try to contain the real estate bubble there without hurting economic growth. Real estate is a pretty important um, sector in terms of the Chinese economy. And Evergrande itself has been trying to uh, raise financing to help uh, cover its debt obligations. And they try to sell assets at some point, but fail to do so. And um, at the end of 2021, they went into default after missing several coupon payments. And they started to talk to their offshore bondholders on a restructuring plan. So just let me stop you there. China is a massive economy. There's a lot of people there. A lot of them want to buy housing. I mean, why, why wouldn't a real estate company work in China? What's, what's going on with that company? Um, the issue with Evergrande is its massive debt load and sales have been going down um, when the economy in China is cooling. So um, Chinese regulators have been laser focused in trying to prop up the sector um, without derailing economic growth. And and so now Evergrande is seen as a really important barometer for the rest of the industry in terms of how it's going to, going to navigate its restructuring. Okay. So with $300 billion worth of debt, 
20 billion or so in, in the US. I mean, that's one of the biggest restructuring situations, certainly for a company that I've seen in a long time. And what's going on with the restructuring now? I mean, how, how, how is the um, process going? Are they reaching agreement? So they did reach an agreement after a long uh, period of negotiation with their ad hoc group of investors. Uh, a few weeks ago, Evergrande released the details, which is a 200-page-long restructuring agreement, which would allow their bondholders to get either new debt or in the form of notes or a combination of new debt and instruments that are tied to their subsidiaries shares, so um, tied to the shares of their property management unit and also their electric vehicle units. Um, that proposal covers the $19 billion in offshore notes, and Evergrande would need over 75% of their bondholders to approve this plan in order to proceed. So they're up to what percentage so far? They are just a little over 30% now. Okay, so there is some momentum there. What, what kind of foreign bondholders are we talking about here? We are seeing a number of really notable U.S. hedge funds that got involved when they bought the Evergrande bonds on the cheap. Um, they include Redwood, Sava, Ellington, Davidson, Kempner, and Varde. Um, these funds are part of the ad hoc group that helped shape the restructuring plan that was released a couple of weeks ago. And um, they are part of the null holders of Evergrande and its unit called Scenery Journey. So what are they expecting to get here? I mean, are they getting paid back at par? Um, they are expected to either, you know, roll into new debt, so extending the maturities, um, or they are expected to get um, instruments that are tied to the shares of certain assets of Evergrande. And I know this is a massive situation and very complicated, many different um, stakeholders, but why is it taking so long to reach an agreement here? Well, it's a massive debt pile, and I guess the most important thing is um, this is a very closely watched situation by not just investors, but the government. And there's, uh, for every step of the way, I can imagine a lot of government intervention on how the negotiations go, and given the company is very important to the health of the economy and also the housing market in China. Um, and it's also really important to investors and it's uh, in the sense that China would honor or try to follow foreign restructuring principles and in terms of how they treat foreign creditors, which um, would be pretty important source of funding going forward for any um, companies in China. Do we think this is a company that really has a long-term future? It seems like the bondholders think so. Um, the housing market has shown signs of improvement lately in terms of new sales. Um, and it seems like at least the ad hoc group members are pretty bullish on the company's uh, ability to survive and you know grow in the long term. So what's the next event on the radar? What, what else should we be looking out for here? Well, we're all closely watching uh, the deadline on April 27th. That's uh, the deadline for investors outside of the ad hoc group to throw their hat in and try to, you know, get on board with the plan. If they do get on board, then they get a 
you know, a sweetener, which is a consent fee. So um, we'll see how many people are on board by April 27th. So what, um, when you step back from this situation, we've been covering it for some time, you know, years in some cases. What are we learning here about, um, about China, about real estate, about investing in emerging markets? Evergrande is really a risky bet uh, for foreign investors because not just because of its massive debt load, but because of its um, how politically important it is. And so um, it's, it's a bet where you have to make assumptions on what the Chinese government would do in order to preserve the, the stability of the housing market. And so there's a lot of psychology that goes in and in some way, it is a big political bet. So we're trying to get inside the minds of the people that run the Communist Party of China, which <laughs> sounds like a tall, a tall order to me. <laughs> exactly. But, okay, so before we talk to um, Matt Goitner, and thanks for the uh, rundown on Evergrande, I definitely think we should be watching that more closely over here. Sure. What's the next big story to watch on your beat, Rachel? I know you're covering a ton of different situations. What else should we be worrying about uh, in distressed debt right now? Right now, I am watching Bed Bath & Beyond really closely. Um, the retailer is once again preparing to file for bankruptcy, which could come as soon as this week. And uh, the company is trying to look for financing options that would help uh, fund the operations through bankruptcy. So that is a retailer that has uh, been through a very rocky and volatile um process in which we thought they would be filing a couple months ago, but they managed to get some rescue financing from a hedge fund investor, um, which uh, bought their shares at a discount. But the Bed Bath has been struggling to keep their shares above a certain threshold for that equity financing. So now they're in real danger of a potential bankruptcy. And we're closely watching if, um, you know, who's going to provide financing for them and who is going to take uh, certain assets or e even their intellectual property um, as a result of this process. Do they have a trigger event that's on the horizon, like a maturity or something that's due that's, that's pushing them over the edge? Or is there anything to, to look at in, in terms of the calendar? Um. There is a deadline, which is on April 26, by which Bed Bath has to raise another $300 million from equity investors. So we are expecting um, the company uh, to file for bankruptcy before that deadline. Great stuff. Rachel Butt from Bloomberg News, thank you very much for joining us. And make sure you read all of Rachel's scoops on the Bloomberg Terminal and, of course, at Bloomberg.com. Switching gears here a bit, as I mentioned earlier, we're delighted to welcome Matthew Goitner, who covers industrials, aerospace and defense, transportation and logistics and machinery at Bloomberg Intelligence. That's a lot of stuff to cover, Matt. Yeah, it is. How do you do it? No idea. Thank you for being on the show. <laughs> sandbox. Thank you for being on the show. So as Rachel says, there's a ton of risk out there. There's a lot of things to worry about. The economy is slowing down. That's got to hurt earnings. At the same time, inflation is hurting consumer demand and higher rates means increased borrowing costs for the companies that you cover. In addition, we have a ton of volatility coming from the banking sector, which went through quite a lot of turmoil recently. And then there's geopolitics, oil, the debt ceiling. I mean, a lot of bad stuff out there, right? That means downgrades, defaults, distress. Is that the overall trend, Matt? More downgrades? 
Yeah, so we, uh, we've we seen a negative bias over the last year with uh, rating uh, downgrades sort of far outpacing upgrades, and we don't really see that trend abating through year-end. And you know, that analysis started using the RATT function that we have on the terminal. So we wanted to see from a bottoms-up uh, analysis across various subsectors, were there any sort of pockets of positive bias or, or light despite all the macroeconomic uncertainty that you just highlighted? And Economists projecting, I think, this morning on ECFC, it was like a 65% probability of default or a recession here in uh, 2023. So that was kind of the progenitor behind the uh, global team tech that we did last week, which uh, garnered uh, quite a bit of interest. So you're seeing some companies that stand out in this that, that are sort of bucking that trend. Can you talk a bit a bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, the in my space, the, the company I found is a company called uh, Halmet, which is an aerospace supplier, and they make many different products, primarily rated to... Um, commercial aerospace and some defense, but they include a lot of the uh, jet engine componentry. Um, their products can be found on the hot part of uh, part of the engine, as well as uh, they make fasteners, engineered structures, as well as uh, some aluminum forged wheels for the uh, trucking space. Um, but they're doing pretty well, and that's all thanks to the sustained recovery in, in air travel um, actions to to reduce debt and uh, earnings growth, which is helping them deleverage their uh, their balance sheets. So they're targeting around one and a half to two times net leverage, which is important because if we look at it, you know, what does that, what does that look like for a rating perspective? It's in line with our triple B median um, that we have on the terminal, which is higher than their current credit rating. So with the outlook for leverage next year that appears to be on track to go below um, some rater adjusted uh, metrics based on our scenario analysis and uh, forward look for, for margins that screen stronger than even higher rated companies than themselves. Um, we think those factors could spark a rating review at, at Moody's or, or S&P, um, given that those metrics look like they might surpass the uh, BEA1, double B plus um, ratings that they have set for them. But just to stop you, and then aerospace transport, I only hear bad news in that sector. I mean, you know, delays and um, groundings and people missing their flights and all sorts of stuff. And what, what makes you think that that sector's in good shape? Yeah, I think um, you know we've sort of ascribed a six to twelve month time frame uh, around which we think that that could happen, so that would get us towards the end of next year and into twenty twenty four. But the the tailwind really is if you look at IATA and some of the commentary out of the airlines, you know we're going to be passenger traffic's going to be returning to to levels in line with pre pandemic levels next year, um, led by domestic North America here in uh, the U S in twenty twenty three. So. You know, the, a lot of the headlines that we've seen across the, the aerospace sector has been really, you know, supply versus demand. There's 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 no shortage of, of demand right now. It's really sort of a supply issue, which is probably the issue we'd rather have because you want the demand. So it's, it's really trying to get planes into customers' hands um, to sort of fly the public around. And to be clear, Halmet, the company that we're talking about here, they produce airplanes and they sell them to airlines is that right so they're a supplier of a lot of the componentry that goes into the engines or fastening the different componentries onto the aircraft which then the oems like boeing or airbus would then to deliver to the uh, airlines who would then use them to fly and the value proposition there is that the new aircraft would generally be uh, much more uh, fuel efficient which is a huge sort of operating expense that um, airlines can sort of save money on and they make stuff that others aren't easily able to make. They have, yeah, that's exactly correct. So when you're on the hot engine, you have you know suck, squeeze, bang, and blow. Right, you have a huge fan that sucks in all of this air, it compresses it, and then you ignite that compressed air with with uh, um, 
jet fuel, obviously, and when you ignite it, what comes out is the exhaust. So the, the componentry needs to, to withstand incredible levels of heat and a lot of cycle time. Obviously, it's operating in a very difficult environment. Um, so there's very high barriers to entry for, uh, for these businesses. Okay, so Helmet, where are they based? Uh, they're based out in Pennsylvania. And how much debt are we talking about? Um, so the the total debt that we that they have outstanding is about four billion. So not quite the Rachel's uh, three hundred billion for forever <laughs> grand. A little smaller scale, but um, um, they, they already own a triple B minus rating at uh, Fitch. So for the purposes of of those bonds, um, uh, an upgrade at S and P or Moody's would qualify those bonds for inclusion in our or or Bloomberg's investment grade indices because you need at least two. Uh, ratings, uh, if you have three raters rating you to qualify for inclusion. So those would be those would be qualify for for upgrade out of the high yield indices. When do we expect them to get an investment grade rating? Um, I, I think it's a six to twelve month um, time frame. So that gets you in towards the end of the year, so we can see has the uh, has air demand played out the way that we think it has, and you'll get a bit of a forward look on twenty twenty four. And I think that that outlook would probably be enough for. Um, one of, if not both, the Raiders to, to sort of move and feel comfortable enough that the strides they've make, made over the last couple of years and this year um, would keep them worthy of, of investment grade. But markets are supposed to sort of anticipate this, and credit markets are supposed to be the smartest. How much of this is already priced in? Yeah, some of it, some of it is is priced in. They trade uh, they trade tighter than uh, than the double B tier uh, capital goods um, curve. Um, maybe even a little tighter than some of the double B plus guys, but when you look at how they trade forces, a very large sample of triple B tier cap goods guys, um, there's still about uh, 50 basis points of of, of yield uh, on average uh, across their curve. So that should help kind of dimensionalize the discount at which their bonds are trading currently, if you uh, believe in that thesis. So Helmet, one to watch, um, potential upgrade candidate. What other companies matter in a similar situation? Um, yeah, so for our team highlighted a bunch of different uh, names, um, which includes guys like Uber, uh, Helmet, which we discussed, Cellnex, Las Vegas Sands, and some of the uh, oil and gas guys as, as uh, potential crossover candidates. Any names you want to give us? Um, I'm sure there's certainly going to be idiosyncrasies that uh, go on with some of the names we looked at. Um, but if I had to peg sort of like a general theme on, on the momentum that we're seeing, it, it'd just be that of recovery, recovery from the pandemic-driven uh, interruptions to travel, leisure, and, and mobility that guys like Uber, Hamet, and Las Vegas Sands are, are exposed to. So for, for Uber, we see a continued improvement in the earnings and cash flow trajectory. Um, Hamet, which we've discussed, is, would benefit from similar trends as well as Las Vegas Sands, which are... Consumer analyst um, Jody Lurie sort of uh, pegs to this uh, idea of revenge spending after uh, lockdowns as being a sort of key driver of uh, future financial risk strengthening for these guys. Yeah, I saw that um, phrase in the note, revenge spending. What does it mean? I it's just People just getting so sick and tired of being locked up, myself and my wife included, <laughs> uh, trying to get out and, and see family and and do things that uh, we didn't get to do in, in the 2020-2021 uh, area. But who are you taking revenge on? Is it the virus generally? Or? Yeah, yeah, right. Yes, <laughs> okay. the eponymous, yes. <laughs> okay. And so the companies that we, we sort of see as sticking out, the sort of diamonds in the rough, what 
what do they have in common? Is it scale, diversification, monopoly power? And what, what is it that, that you think is their secret? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a combination of all three. But I think from, from the credit side, a lot of these guys, the, the tailwinds are just driving and improving earnings and cash flow trajectory. And we've seen a lot of these guys sort of take cash that they're getting in and, and paying down absolute debt levels. So you get the combination of both your, your numerator and, and denominator getting better. So I think, you know, at the, at the end of the day, it's it's how does that sort of stack up to, to the Raider frameworks and, and, and what do we think is going to eventually tip them over. But surely even these ones aren't risk-free though, right? I mean, we're, we're credit guys. We always worry about what could go wrong. What are the biggest concerns that you have, Matt? What keeps you up at night worrying? Yeah, I think I think at least well, for guys like Hal Matt or, or some of these other guys, I think you know just sort of a, a, a deep recession rather than uh, some type of uh, soft landing that really alters uh, people's sort of spending patterns, moving back away from the sort of travel and leisure return that we've seen and back towards maybe goods um, or just far less spending in total um, would be sort of the the largest overarching um, risk that needs to sort of have an eye kept on. Very good. Thank you very much, Matt Goitner of Bloomberg Intelligence. You can see all of his analysis on the Bloomberg terminal. There's a lot going on in those uh, companies, so do check it out. And thanks again to Rachel Butt from Bloomberg News. Read all of her scoops on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. I'm James Crombie. It's been a pleasure having you. See you next week on The Credit Edge. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.